This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business. Hi, I'm Elsie Rutterford, co-founder of Bybee. Hi, I'm Dominika Minarovic, co-founder of Bybee. And to us, it's a matter of positivity. Clean beauty and sustainability, while noble pursuits, are inherently rife with misinformation and lacking definition. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. There may be no perfect answer or solution, but there's plenty of progress and we all have room to grow. Every individual and every business is in a different stage that represents the reality that clean, sustainability, and activism exist on a spectrum and look different to all of us. Yet, an argument can be made that we all have a part to play as global citizens. The existing system needs a total reconstruction, which will take time, leadership, and a commitment to make the change happen. For British beauty brand Bybay, defining clean beauty has been table stakes for this startup. But co-founders Elsie Rutterford and Dominika Minarovic say the road to sustainability has been a work in progress. Elsie and Dominica, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been a huge fan of your brand, kind of lurking behind watching what you've been doing. So super happy to have the opportunity to, to speak with both of you for the first time. Thank you for having us. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for those kind words as well. Of course. So if you don't mind, let's start at the beginning and kind of set the stage because this isn't kind of what you're doing now is not sort of the genesis of the two of you coming together. I always like to get the backstory because it kind of informs a lot, I think, usually. So how did the two of you meet and then ultimately come together to be business partners? Of course. Well, we have to cast our minds back now quite some years, <laughs> which every time I say, tell this story, I, it never ceases to surprise me how long ago it was now. So we met in 2012. So that is almost 10 years ago, which is just bonkers because it's sped by. Um, we were both working together at the same company. So we joined around the same time and we were in advertising sales. So we are both salespeople through and through. That's our background. That's, uh, you know, really where we start our careers and we were um, selling advertising space um, essentially here in London. Started at the same time, quite quickly hit it off, became sort of, you know, office BFF, sort of sat next to each other, just gossiping and bonding over many, many things. But one of the real, I guess, points of bonding that we found that we had was a shared love of kind of health, fitness, wellness, that sort of wellness scene was really hitting the UK at the time. We're a little bit behind you guys in the US. So, and yeah, we just, you know, we like enjoyed going to the gym together and we would like trade recipes for sweet potato brownies and we'd follow all of the vegan influencers who were suddenly making veganism cool when it used to just be about like lentils and kind of crunchy granola. So, you know, that was kind of going on. And then alongside that, we've both always been really interested in beauty um, for, for kind of many different reasons. But I guess the sort of very, very early initial thoughts of the business was around, yeah, could we marry together this love of kind of beauty and wellness essentially and our answer to that was what about if we started to look into making our own beauty products in the same way that all of the kind of fitness and food influencers were doing with their own food right could we start to understand beauty labels start to kind of educate ourselves around beauty ingredients and then make our own products um, so we did and we were doing that in our kitchens really enjoyed it very much as a hobby to begin with although I would say we're both 
pretty entrepreneurial like we've both always kind of had that streak in us and I think in the back of our minds always sort of could this be something more but we spent quite a long time kind of figuring out what our offering was and testing out different kind of I guess avenues of monetization before we landed on a product brand and landing on the product brand actually came much later we didn't launch Bybee until 2017 so what we did in the meantime was launch a kind of blog called Clean Beauty Insiders which was dedicated to sharing these these recipes that we were coming up with in our kitchen we also then went on to write a book which was published by Penguin which was a recipe book for your skin and we were running workshops in London so at one point we were kind of thinking you know could this be an events business you know could we bring people together to kind of uh, share a love of beauty so that we were sort of like testing things out and I guess what we proved along the journey was that there was an audience for natural beauty there was an audience that we really resonated with in, t- in terms of being quite a mainstream millennial beauty audience and that there was probably a gap for a, a beauty brand that could really speak to them but also be upheld in great ethics around kind of being natural and vegan and sustainable but it took us a while to figure out that actually what we wanted to do was launch a product brand that really spoke to that so yeah we kind of went we came in and into things from the content angle and then went on to launch uh, by the end of 2017. Yeah, you know, I think one of the most interesting dynamics and challenging dynamics, and I speak from sort of personal experience, I feel like I'm the Elizabeth Taylor of the beauty industry. Um, When it comes to partners, I'm not sure what it says about me. But it's, you know, being founders together is challenging, especially when you're friends. And how have you navigated kind of the roles and responsibilities? And you clearly have a really good dynamic because when partnerships aren't working, it's palpable. So you're clearly doing something right. (laughs) Yeah. And you're right. It is a really tricky dynamic to get right. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of communication and a lot of patience. I think absolutely we are friends. Um, You can't spend as much time as we have (laughs) over the past kind of 10 years with someone you don't like. So fundamentally, of course, there is a really solid friendship behind our partnership. But I think what's always worked in our favor is that we will work colleagues. And I think that sets out our dynamic to be a touch more professional maybe than a set of friends just coming together with a great idea. Um, I think we always respected each other's work ethic and drive. And I think the danger of sometimes going into business with a friend is that you don't always know how they're going to behave from a work ethic perspective. And, you know, is one of you going to be harder working than the other? Is someone going to have more grit than the other? But we already knew that and kind of really appreciated that in the other person. So I think the fundamentals and foundation of our relationship were always going to set us up for success because it was set up in a professional environment. And I think we just genuinely enjoy each other's company, but have admiration for the other. I think we each have a, a distinct set of skills, even though we do cross over on quite a lot of things, including kind of sales and that kind of outward facing ability to communicate and sell our brand. And I think that's what gives us a lot of strength as founders. But when you dig a bit deeper, we each have our own set of skills that are very complementary and we have slightly different ways of thinking that are really complementary and we challenge each other a lot. And we're always open to those conversations as well. I think as a founder, it's really important to have those open discussions about, you know, plans and and decisions and thoughts and opinions and be really open to hearing, you know, others um, that oppose yours as well. So I think that's another skill set that we have is just to be really open and um, good communication skills as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I I think the founder relationship is something that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it is one of the biggest reasons that businesses fail. 
because if you don't have alignment among sort of founders, the team falls apart and the business falls apart. So I think the the way you've gone about it is is really thoughtful and clearly with a business sense rather than we really like each other. Let's start a business together. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. I always love brands that kind of stem from either a content play or a community because I think it definitely gives the brand a leg up. The easiest part in some respects is building a brand, but then you have to find people to actually buy the brand. But when you have a built-in community, you kind of have a head start. So I'm curious what the vision for the brand was kind of at the inception and what the process looked like going from concept to market, because you did have this community. So I'm wondering, how did you leverage them? What did the development process look like? And then beyond that, sort of in going through the brand development process, what were your non-negotiables. You're a brand that is grounded in purpose. So it wasn't just about throwing stuff in a jar with some labels and capturing the monetary opportunity. It goes a bit deeper for you guys. Wow, what a question. (laughs) Sorry, it was rather long-winded. No, no, it's good. I'm like, God, okay, like I was trying to answer it all. Okay, so the brand kind of inception then. So those five years that I kind of talked about between starting the kind of content platform and, and then spitting out a brand launch in 2017... I think a lot of that was dedicated to kind of cultivating and and harnessing this community within the kind of like natural beauty world here in London, which really did end up kind of playing into how the brand was shaped. And the community is, is small. We weren't skincare influencers with millions of followers. We had a really like tight group of people who were really interested in in the kind of natural beauty scene who were really engaged and really receptive and that we could really kind of lean on when we were kind of starting to think about the initial stages of the brand so they were very useful when it came to things like market research and understanding our audience and understanding if there was an appetite but I think what was quite interesting with the way that we did things was that because we had this in real life event kind of arm to the business that the content that we were producing we would have groups of people so the events that we were running were basically make your own skincare with us on a Saturday and we would like get people together we were making like coffee body scrubs so it wasn't at that point it wasn't particularly sophisticated I might add that we have gone on to study formulation um, since then and we're much more sophisticated and we have a lab and we've got chemists that we work with now but back then it was just it kind of exploring the world of making your own skincare so we bring together people in a room it was a kind of Saturday afternoon um, event that we would do we'd supply a bit of Prosecco just to get people kind of in the mood and flowing and they acted as what what then kind of became a focus groups you know these we had these women like these groups of people in a room together really kind of um, captive audience of people um, that we would just start to bounce ideas off of when we were starting to think about the brand and starting to think about what you know what was important for people and and they were really really crucial in understanding the gap that we felt existed which was the fact that a natural um, vegan kind of sustainable brand didn't exist to speak to us as a mass beauty consumer you know so this is a few years ago but it either existed in the way of being a a lovely you know beautiful homegrown lavender brand that you could buy from a very niche outlet but it would set you back $200 for a facial serum and quite frankly we weren't in the market to spend that or on the other end of the scale um, it was like walk into Whole Foods tag it onto your grocery shop and it feels very like nuts and berries and not very like exciting like luxury 
you know, fun beauty experience. So we really wanted to speak to the kind of middle of that, which was great ethics, great values, great formulations, but done in a way that felt modern and fresh and could speak to a mainstream beauty audience. And doing those focus groups or those workshops and, and speaking to our community really helped us cement that there was a gap. Whereas, you know, if we hadn't been able to do that, I guess, and we hadn't had that kind of audience and community to lean on, we perhaps wouldn't have felt as confident to sort of go on and start the brand and chuck in our full-time jobs in advertising and really like give it everything. Um, so that was incredibly useful for us. And then what was the second part of your question? <laughs> oh, so sorry. I love the fact that it started with sort of conversations. I think there's this new trend of brands being built on data. So it's like, this is trending. I'm going to build a product around it. I have my own opinions around all of that. That's for another time. It's become my soapbox of late. But I think data and numbers are fantastic and I love them. But at the end of the day, there are people behind those numbers. And if you don't have the conversations, it will be soulless and you will miss something. So I love the genesis of it. My other question was, what did your process look like? So it sort of started from this this group, but what were your non-negotiables going into it? Price was obviously one, so you wanted it to be affordable. But from a formulation standpoint, were there, and a packaging standpoint, were there kind of guardrails you were playing with in terms of how you wanted to show up when you launched? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we had embodied this value of being natural. And for us, natural is driven by performance. So touching back to where Elsie started with the journey is like, could we dive into our fridges and start to use these ingredients that we know have great benefits for the skin, uh, for your insides? And could we then apply them to your skin? So we're using avocados in our smoothies. They're rich in omega oils. Hey, what if we quite literally applied them to our face? Would we get amazing benefits? And yes, you absolutely do because you're using high quantities of pure unprocessed natural ingredients. So for us, when we decided to launch the brand, we were like, well, we already know the value of these natural ingredients. They're so three-dimensional. You don't get the synthetic fillers and the preservatives and and I guess the functional ingredients that you do in a mainstream formulation you know even the preservatives and the base formulation when you use natural ingredients have benefits for the skin because they're all derived from nature and they've got holistic benefits they're, they're rich in minerals vitamins antioxidants and then they've got a functional purpose for the formulation so we were like we're delivering such value for our consumer because at the top of the inculus right to the bottom are ingredients that have a benefit for the skin. We've never talked about toxins. We've never bashed synthetics because we don't believe that beauty should be about negativity. You know, we're trying to talk about the positives of why we use naturals, the why we use ingredients, not what's not in our products. We talk about what is in our products. So natural was always a non-negotiable for us because we genuinely believe that delivered the best performance for us and, and therefore our consumers. And then things like vegan, cruelty-free, for us are super obvious. Why do we have animal byproducts in our products? Why are we not pushing to ban things like animal testing? You know, these just seemed super obvious to us well before they became, you know, massive consumer trends driven by data, as you say. You know, we used our intuition for a lot of these things. But I think the most interesting thing that we started 
in those early days, which is now coming to prominence, is really our focus on sustainability. And I don't tend to like to use the word sustainability or sustainable because at the end of the day, we're a consumer brand creating product and shipping it around the world. By that very concept, that means that we're unsustainable. We prefer to use terms like climate conscious or pro-planet because we acknowledge that by being in existence, we're not technically sustainable, although we're obviously trying to change that. But these kind of concepts around pack packaging, sustainable supply chains and raw material sourcing. You know, these were things that we started from day one before they were, you know, driven by data and made really cool and, you know, a marketing term. It was actually driven by the horror of going into these supply chains and seeing how much waste there was, how little, I guess, understanding there was about where your ingredients were coming from, who was harvesting them, how many hands they were passing through, the sheer amount of waste there is in in beauty packaging and why are we putting a box within a box within a box wrapped in plastic? You know, who's setting those standards and why are we allowing our consumers to expect those things? So these were all like realizations we had when we were starting the brand and we started to do a lot. We didn't term ourselves as sustainable. The term didn't exist back in 2017 and it certainly wasn't really a demand from consumers it was just something that we felt quite passionate around pursuing because we just thought if we're starting a brand in 2017 we can't go into it knowing that we're going to be implementing all of these poor practices so right from day one we started to use better quality packaging recyclable packaging we demanded to know where all of our raw materials were coming from we started to understand what the impact on the environment was from our raw materials from a harvesting and renewability perspective we were thinking about how often we were putting things on planes versus sending things by sea these were decisions that were already coming to front of our minds as well as making commercial decisions so I think it's always been a value that's been really authentic to the brand and even jumping back to Clean Beauty Insiders back in 2014-2015 the whole idea was that you were going into your fridge you were taking ingredients that you know were about to go off or already open that you might end up discarding and you're creating this really lovely bespoke one-time use product but there's no waste there's no excess packaging So it made a lot of sense for us to continue those themes into our product brand where we could. So there were a lot of non-negotiables at the start. It made us quite difficult to work with. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. (laughs) Um, We did all of our formulation in-house, including all of our sourcing. So we would go to a manufacturer quite literally and say, can you make this for us? But you have to buy everything from here. You have to source the packaging from here and you have to make it like this. And they were like... This isn't really the way that it works. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Normally you just tell us you want a cream for $2 and we make that for you. But we were like, well, that just doesn't sound very good, does it? And they were like, well, I guess not. So let's try it your way. And now we're a multi-million dollar brand, you know, shifting some serious volume through those guys. And I think that they now appreciate our process. (laughs) It's interesting to talk about kind of what you just mentioned. I think it's infinitely easier to build a brand based on those values than it is for a legacy brand to kind of retrofit the ethos. And I think a a lot of big brands are obviously trying, but you certainly get grouped into that clean, sustainable sort of category, if you will, which when you launched, even if you didn't message to it, was definitely kind of a differentiated positioning. But now, you know, fast forward, it's simultaneously become kind of table stakes, ubiquitous, completely unregulated, which it means that that brands are sort of left to their own devices. So 
some brands like you are clearly doing the hard work to kind of to further the industry and educate consumers and, you know, with transparency and kind of self-regulation. But on the other side, you have opportunistic players that are kind of in the market to capture the opportunity that is huge. And they play a little free and easy with the claims and create a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. So as a brand who's kind of doing the hard work, how do you navigate all that noise and actually take credit for kind of doing the work? Yeah, it's an interesting question. As you can imagine, the quantity of greenwashing that goes on in our industry becomes particularly frustrating for us as we are, as you say, putting in the hard graft and it will then be frustrating and disappointing, I guess, to see brands kind of swoop in and either make claims that you know aren't substantiated and and that they can't back up or put things out there and claim that they are sustainable when actually they should just be table stakes. So, you know, things like our packaging is recyclable and therefore we are sustainable. That kind of messaging winds us up. However, I think it's really important to one, just stay in our lane and focus on what we are doing. And two, be open to celebrating when some of the bigger guys say come along and are trying to kind of make small movements, albeit in a very slow and clunky manner. But we have to stop and say, isn't it fantastic that one of the big guys are making steps towards a more sustainable future for everyone? So we do have to kind of stop and celebrate that people are at least kind of thinking about this and bringing it to the consumer, like the front of mind for the consumer. But I think the way that we cut through and what we did sort of over the past 18 months, I would say, when we first started and we knew that we wanted to be sustainable or or climate conscious or, you know, whatever you want to term it, we knew that we wanted to do things better in terms of our impact on the planet. We kind of went at it with like, okay, let's just do everything then. All right, let's choose a better material and let's choose, uh, you know, better ingredients where we can. Um, Let's do everything we can from a corporate standpoint to make sure that our office is running completely green. And we were incredibly proud about everything that we were doing. But when we came to actually communicate that to our customer and show them what we were doing, we found it quite difficult because we were basically doing a lot of things and not necessarily going deep on any of those. So not doing any of them particularly well and not really owning any of that. And I think, you know, for the planet, what that also meant was that we weren't really having the best impact that we could do. So what we did back end of 2019 was sit down and say, we need to do a proper audit of our entire supply chain. We need to understand our true impact. And then we need to focus on something super tight and say, this is our mission when it comes to being climate conscious or environmentally responsible. And this is where we can have the best positive impact. So we did that and we looked at our entire supply chain. So we say from seed to shelf and we actually developed an in-house auditing system um, that helped facilitate that as well as bring on an external partner to help us kind of look at full kind of life cycle analysis of our entire supply chain. And basically where that spat out was the biggest impact we have um, negatively is carbon, is our carbon footprint. But the biggest positive impact we can have for the planet would be to change that everything just kept coming back to carbon. Every bit of work that we did, it was like, it's our carbon footprint. You know, carbon is the biggest contributor to climate change at the moment. So 
back end of 2019, we kind of looked out into 2020. We set our pro planet goals to be completely centered around carbon. We shifted the business to um, start to look at our entire supply chain and understand where we could make tweaks on carbon. We got ourselves to a position of carbon neutrality by the end of last year, so 2020. And we are now on a path to carbon negativity by 2025, which is, you know, an absolutely massive goal for us. But what that has meant was that we have a very, very clear goal when it comes to our sustainable efforts. And this is then very easy for us to communicate to our consumer. It's very easy for a consumer to come and have a look at what we're doing, understand where we're doing it, understand the things, the packaging materials, why we decide to work with a sugarcane based bioplastic, for example, understand why we might pick working with an upcycled ingredient and to make an informed decision on whether they want to buy us based on our eco credentials. And that has really helped us cut through. I think it helps us cut through the greenwashing. It helps us cut through the kind of false claims and the fact that there is little regulation because there is regulation when it comes to carbon. And we are kind of well within really understanding our carbon footprint and having that audited. So yeah, I think that's what we have to do now. We You have to kind of like pick your battle and, and then just go full throttle at it. Otherwise, it does become incredibly confusing. It's hard to actually have any positive change as a brand and you will just confuse your consumer. At Beauty Matter, we're committed to leveraging the platform we've built and the community we've nurtured to help make change happen. Our first impact partner is the Eco Soap Bank, a global humanitarian nonprofit that's saving lives by rescuing, recycling, and redistributing soap to communities that otherwise lack essential hygiene. Eco Soap Bank is quite literally changing the world, one recycled bar of soap at a time. As an industry, we can help them empower women and fight preventable disease. It's time to get involved. Learn more about partnership opportunities and the global impact a bar of soap can have by visiting ecosoapbank.org. I feel that so much of the conversation kind of in this category specifically has become kind of adversarial where it's like, I'm right, you're wrong, glass is better than plastic. If only it were that easy. Like, it's not about one thing being better than another. It's about, to your point, choices for a brand. And it's a complicated conversation. So I applaud you for the work you're doing, really. I mean, you do have to choose your battles because... And I think also I would imagine that it's also challenging, you know, 10 years ago, you would make decisions on packaging or supply chain and you're like, great, done, check, done, moving forward. And now nothing is sort of a final decision because technology keeps moving from sort of a materials standpoint. So maybe there'll be something better than sugar cane, right? And then you guys are going to want to be like, all right, got to look at the packaging again. So it's kind of a different way of evolving a brand because decisions are only kind of for the here and now, but they could change. 100%. And it's so interesting you say that because we had a conversation today with a packaging supplier who asked a leading question around the sugar cane and, you know, its credentials. The answer is it's the lesser of several evils, right? We're not talking about any, there is no such thing as a perfect material, as you say, it just, it quite literally doesn't exist. So when we're thinking about materials, all we're doing is saying, no, we can't use that. We can't use that. We can't use that. We can't, what's left? Okay, well, that that's probably slightly 
like more in line than that the decision making is so challenging it's not as you say what's the best material it's like what's the least worst material (laughs) well and also what's the least worst material for my business it's not the same decision for it depends on the the category you're in the formulation there's so many factors that need to be considered Yeah. And I think, you know, consumers should always be wary of a brand that tries to purport perfection in this era, in this space. As soon as someone's talking about the silver bullet and having solved the climate crisis through, you know, their recyclable palette, I think is an obvious point to say that brand probably doesn't value, you know, the consumer, but also the planet that seriously. We would never go out and say we've, you know, we've solved it. We know what we're, we know what we're doing and we've cracked the nut. You know, it's still, there's so many things at play when it comes to sustainability. And ultimately, as long as you are a product brand, you do have a carbon impact and you have an impact on the planet. So to then say that you are truly sustainable is, in my opinion, an oxymoron anyway. So you guys obviously are a UK-based brand, but you've also launched in the US in a big way, most recently with an 1800-store rollout with Target. You know, every market has cultural nuances, and while sort of the US and UK share a language, there's still there's still nuances to the market. So I'm curious, what are the similarities and differences when it comes to kind of this clean beauty category and conscious consumers? Like, are the UK consumers the same as the US? Like, are there sort of cultural differences? Yeah, there are definitely cultural differences, which we're still kind of like grappling with and learning at the moment. You know, we are three months into our launch in, into Target and every day we learn something new about the US consumer. Um, I think with regards to the kind of clean space and being a clean brand playing in the US market, I think that the US consumer is probably more advanced and has a slightly more sophisticated knowledge of the clean beauty space because I think it landed in the US sooner than it did in the UK. I think it picked up speed sooner than it did in the UK as well. And that was probably driven by the differences in kind of like formulation guidelines and regulations by territory. So perhaps it didn't land as quickly as it did in the UK uh, because there we've got slightly tighter regulations when it comes to kind of formulation and stuff. So it was probably a hotter topic over there in, in the US. Uh, But I think that means that it's a blessing and it's a curse because I think part of our job is already done. We don't need to come into the market and educate on natural ingredients like you guys get that. You understand it. it. You're you're won over by it. You're interested in it. But we do have a hell of a lot more competition. um, And I think um, we probably have a harder job to do really showing how our formulation is different to another clean brand on the market and also proving that we're not just another clean brand on the market. We, you know, we're not jumping on the bandwagon that we do have authenticity and depth to our brand and products that, that really work. So I think that's been a real learning curve for us, but super interesting. And it's been actually really fun, you know, developing marketing messaging that can really speak to the US consumer. As you say, we have the same language. We thought that we'd just land there and say the same thing, but actually, no, (laughs) we do need to kind of tweak things. So that's been super interesting. I think that you then kind of look at the US market in itself. Obviously, we're finding that state by state, you know, that markets within themselves, um, we can't approach the US as a whole, we really do have to look at it by state. Uh, So really understanding where the brand is resonating state wise is is super interesting, um, and where we have more work to do. And then if you drill down even further into that, the target customer is like a whole other 
being in themselves, you know? <laughs> and that's been super interesting to kind of really start to understand and learn what she's really driven and motivated by. Really understanding, we don't have Target, it's also worth saying, we don't have Target in the UK. We actually don't really have a, a, a store that rivals it. We have, you know, the, the drugstore side of things. So we've got Boots and Superdrug, but they're not, uh, you wouldn't go in there and pick up, you know, some a jumper and a duvet set as well as your beauty products. Like they're very like pharmaceutical. Uh, we don't really have anything that speaks to it. So the whole idea of Target has been really interesting for us as a business to kind of really understand the, the consumer's mindset when they step into a, a Target store and the kind of like why I'm there versus the while I'm there and how that affects what they might pick up off the shelf and how then... Do our products speak to somebody who may have just popped in? So we hear you just pop in for a bottle of water and you come out like $300 short <laughs> an hour later. So um, really understanding the target customer has been a real nuance for us. And, and I think one that perhaps we didn't appreciate going in um, how nuanced it, it would be. But super interesting. It's been really interesting understanding uh, what kind of forms of media the US market will um, kind of respond to and, and be receptive to versus the UK. I think we've been experimenting with more sort of traditional forms of media that's been quite cool and, and has like a great uptake, like TV's doing really well for us. I think one of the things that I find interesting about your business is that you kind of have a really I think, modern approach to distribution. So you're in Credo and Sephora, and you kind of have a deep relationship with Sephora because you're in, you kind of have an international distribution footprint with them. But then you decided to to launch in a big way with Target. So first of all, how did you navigate that? Because that's kind of needs negotiating skills, I would imagine. So you keep everyone happy and engaged. I'm curious about what your strategy was and, and why that was the, the path you could have taken, because obviously, I'm sure you had other choices. Yeah, I think it was it was really interesting for us when we were looking at the US landscape. As you've mentioned, you know, we are partnered with Sephora, um, we're partnered with Boots in the UK. So imagining, I guess, a similar route into the US, perhaps through a drugstore pharmacy route or perhaps a Sephora. But when we started to really look at Target and the Target landscape, you know, it, they're still very much building their beauty assortment. It's a really exciting space for beauty in terms of the brands that they're bringing in. But I think that mass positioning as well was really attractive to us. I guess we hadn't necessarily crystallized ourselves as a mass brand until we really got deep in with Target. Our price point had always moved us out of the prestige realm. We'd never aimed or had ambitions to be in a luxury prestige space. I think for us, an accessible price point was really important in terms of perpetuating our values of being accessible and making sustainability a, a, like a mass concept. So we had always had a focus on price, but Target really challenged us to, to bring those prices even further down and make ourselves a truly mass proposition. And I think that was definitely the right thing for the brand because there is still, for the moment, a little bit of white space in this pricing category, I would say. The prestige space for clean beauty is very crowded. So just from a pure opportunity perspective, I think you know we had a bit of white space both in Target and from a pricing perspective. But I think as a retailer, you know, the assortment that the buyer has put together, I think, has been really thoughtful at Target. He's brought in some great brands that aren't competing and aren't cannibalizing, but really uplift the whole category. There's a real focus on clean, but not necessarily from a kind of toxin kind of bashing perspective. It's really a focus on kind of high performance clinical ingredients that have an effect on your skin at that 
good price point. And I think that's a really important message to the customer that you don't have to go out and spend $50, $60 on a cleanser to get great skin. <laughs> so there were a couple of things that really attracted us. Obviously the scale, you know, we're trying to do things better for the planet, but obviously we're only going to have that impact if we're doing things at scale. So, you know, without a doubt, the scale of Target was, was super attractive. In terms of the negotiations, you know, there was obviously the courtship that always happened with a big retailer you know we spent a lot of time in the US spent a lot of time with Target but I think that there is just you would be surprised at how many synergies there are between us and Target as a business it sounds absolutely crazy because we are a tiny business compared to Target but in terms of what our ambitions are and what I think and I believe our inherent values are there are a lot of synergies and it felt like we had kind of come home when we were speaking to the buyer when we were speaking to the wider Target team it just really felt like we were all aligned in what we wanted to achieve from a beauty and a product assortment perspective so I was more talking about keeping your current distribution intact. <laughs> but we don't have to talk about that. You clearly did it. And you're clearly selling at the other retailers. Otherwise, you know, it would become an issue. And I think that the interesting thing to me, I think that this was a long time coming. And it's just another, it's another trend that was accelerated by the pandemic. You know, for so long, brands were defined by their channel of distribution or the choices they made. And now it doesn't matter anymore. Your channel is the consumer. It's not, you know, do you live in Target or do you live in Nima Marcus, which I think is really interesting. I want to dive into kind of the funding of the business, if you don't mind, because you don't just launch into 1800 Target doors without some capital behind you. And, you know, a lot of brands, once they, if they're self-funded and they get sort of that perception of growth. So there's interest from the consumer, there's interest, you know, from retailers, you can really sort of hit a kind of a bottleneck if you don't, if you can't capitalize or you don't have the money to make the inventory to fill the opportunity. So it'd be interesting to understand how you funded the brand kind of initially in the early days, but also in January, you launched a pretty significant series A round led by Point King and Unilever Ventures. That's an existing investor to support that launch. So curious how you sort of funded things in the early days, because I think that's always of interest to founders and then also kind of what the fundraising process looked like for you and kind of what you're looking for in an investor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our kind of fundraising journey to date, uh, we did a small pre-seed just as we were launching the brand as a kind of like a round of um, friends and family. And then our seed was in 2018 and that was led by Unilever Ventures. So we got um, kind of institutional money on pretty quickly, but we were thrilled to bring them on as a partner. They're just, they're really fabulous. They have a um, great kind of portfolio of, of very similar brands, but nothing that feels too competing. Um, so their kind of breadth of experience is, um, is incredibly thorough. You know, as a, a kind of venture arm of Unilever, they've obviously got insight into um, some pretty interesting kind of industry knowledge, uh, as well as just being a great team. So we were thrilled to kind of have them on, on board. They, you know, they helped us in the conversations around um, that distribution strategy that we've just talked about, you know, was, was it right to go into a kind of mass retailer? Should we take the Sephora relationship kind of global? So they were sort of very sold and very um, kind of bought into the idea of, you know, speaking with the likes of a, a target and going kind of down that mass route. 
so they were supportive of that, which meant that when we went on to go and raise our Series A, which was, as you say, in the run up to the launch in Target and to make sure that we were well capitalised, um, because absolutely you need cash to work with um, a business like Target, you know, from an inventory perspective, but also from a marketing perspective. You're playing with more zeros. <laughs> I mean, God, yeah, like <laughs> the, the number of zeros that we were adding on to the door count, you know, based on what we'd or what we'd been doing so far was, you know, was, was huge. So I think from an inventory perspective, from a marketing perspective as well, we had the benefit of working with retailers ahead of working with Target, which meant that we had a good understanding of how much it takes to service an account like them. Obviously, then we added the zeros because of the because of the scale. But I think we kind of came into it knowing, okay, it is going to cost us. We are probably going to get to, you know, have to place some big stock orders. There is going to be a bottleneck before we get paid for that. Like we had a decent couple of years of trading with the likes of Sephora to, to understand what that supply chain looks like and what it looks like in terms of like dollar value servicing an account like Target. So we then worked backwards and understood when we would need to start our Series A fundraise, basically. So we had Unilever on board and really supportive to kind of follow on into, into a Series A. And we had met Point King Capital, who are based out of Sydney, through some kind of industry shared contacts, um, introduced to them and uh, again, just like hit it off. Like we we met with uh, Sam, who's our investment director and kind of heads up Point King, who's incredibly experienced within the beauty industry. And it was just, you know, we've met a lot of investors. I will just like to add, I'm making this process. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm making it sound like <laughs> it was a walk in the park and we just met with Unilever and just met with Point King and then we were done. We were not. This was a very long process um, for every fundraiser, every step of our fundraiser raising journey has been thorough, long, painful at times, but we've met some amazing people. And, you know, both with Unilever, the Unilever team, as well as the Point King team, as soon as we met them and kind of explained the vision, we just felt like they were super aligned and they got what we were trying to do. So that made kind of selling in the opportunity at Target and selling in why we needed to raise the 7 million that we were raising much easier conversation because they were well behind the direction that we were taking the brand. I guess we just really felt like the team there would have the kind of expertise and the knowledge to help guide us in, you know, what was the, the landing of the biggest account in the brand's history. And I think that's important as well in, in the kind of investment landscape is we weren't just looking for the dollars. We were looking for the experience as well. Like we were looking for the right partners. We were looking for people who would really be able to to guide essentially two novices. You know, we don't know the US market and we don't know, as I said earlier, we don't even have a target in the UK. So I think super pleased with with how it's panned out. We've got a cap table of some really interesting people based all over the world who are really well placed to kind of like really guide and, and mentor the business. And I think that's super important if you are going into an account like Target. Yeah, I would agree. So I have one last question for each of you. You know, the industry is moving so fast and then coming off of the, the pandemic, which has accelerated a lot of trends and made things that were kind of bubbling up mainstream very quickly. You know, I'm excited because I think we're going to enter into this period of really profound innovation. I think the beauty industry is going to look totally different in, in a few years. And I guess, you know, my question to you is, do you have any predictions of what that might be, especially, you know, innovations in, in the space that you're in? And also, you know, do you have any hopes for the future of the beauty industry? I think, you know, we have a lot of work to do on a lot of fronts. And what are your hopes for the beauty industry looking forward? Yeah, so again, such a powerful question. I think in terms of innovation, you're absolutely right. I think innovation is being driven by the consumer. I think that, 
you know, 15, 20 years ago, if you think about it, all these brands were producing products. The only way that you would know if they were any good were, you know, those reviews in the back of Marie Claire or, you know, InStyle or Glamour, you know, with an editor telling you to buy it. But there was no validation really from your peers. There was no way to cross-reference those. So you kind of just went on the on the assumption that these paid experts would know what they were talking about. Um, whereas in this day and age, you know, I would arguably say that your peer is now that expert and that journalist is probably the last last on the list that you're looking for that validation from. And I think that that has collectively raised the bar in terms of what you can expect from product performance. And actually, as a brand, you can't get away with crap products anymore that, you know, I see so many products coming to market and genuinely am impressed by a lot of them because I think that brands have access to innovation, the newest ingredients, um, and we now have a clearer understanding of what really has an impact on the skin. Um, and it's not so much about those ridiculous gross margins and it's actually about delivering value to the customer. I think from our perspective, we're seeing a, a big marrying up of skin and wellness. Um, and this is, you know, where the brand is rooted. So obviously I'm going to say that that is a big trend, but more and more I'm seeing a lot of the concepts from food and wellness supplements filtering down into beauty. Um, and it's definitely where we see a lot of inspiration, but I think in a post-COVID era where people are quite concerned with their health, that is extending to their skin. You know, the skin is the body's largest organ. And when you're so consumed with your health and your well-being, often your skin is one, the first place to show when that is in disarray, but two, is something that needs to be taken care of when you're thinking about your wider holistic health. So I think clean brands and brands that err on the side of kind of wellness are really well-placed. And I think, you know, price is a big point of innovation in that how can we continue to deliver these excellent formulations at prices that people can afford? You know, we see a lot of consumers now moving downstream to retailers like Target from Sephora. How do we still inspire and excite those customers at that price point when, you know, we don't have as much flex on gross margin and, and we can't invest as much perhaps into innovation as you can at a prestige price point? And how do we still deliver that beauty experience through packaging as well? Because that is still super important. So I think, you know, there is going to be a continual shift towards clean, whether you like it or you hate it, whether you believe it or you don't, I don't, I think that we would be forced to say that the clean beauty movement is going away. I think it's becoming stronger. And I think the messaging around clean, healthy skin is just resonating more and more with the consumer. So for us, obviously that's really great news, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I do think that most brands will then start to just, just, you know, start creating clean formulations as table stakes. And then again, on, on this, the sustainability and particularly the packaging side of things, I do think that that is now table stakes and you can't get away with, you know, just reckless packaging um, that is completely unrecyclable. I think that consumers call you out. I think if you're shipping things in e-commerce packaging in bags, you know, with bubble wrap and then wrapped in like another plastic bag, you will get called out. And I think that's a great thing. Um, so just to be really conscious about excessive materials, I think is something that will become, you know, much more relevant for the consumer and therefore will filter down into like brand innovation as well. Elsie, do you have anything else to add? I think Dominica has covered covered a good part of it. I think, yeah, I agree with everything that she's just said. I think from less of a product formulation um, perspective and more just of a general kind of messaging perspective, we are uh, really seeing a shift in 
the sort of perfect skin that has been uh, sort of put out by the beauty industry for the past 50 years. Um, we recently launched a kind of skin positivity uh, campaign and um, the way that that resonated with the consumer was so exciting. It was so exciting to see people excited to see real skin. You know, people were were just like, thank goodness, like somebody is finally here to show what real skin actually looks like and not be afraid to show pores and texture and lines I think that will only continue to grow. I think there's a transparency that's that's kind of hitting the beauty industry that perhaps, you know, hit fashion some time ago and, and we saw, you know, sort of waves of body positivity. Well, I think we'll we'll see that with skin positivity. And I think we, we will continue to see, yeah, just a, a level of transparency that has been kind of quite literally touched over by the industry, by the beauty industry for so long. And that's really exciting. I think that's a really positive and exciting I've said exciting about a hundred times you can tell I'm very excited about it (laughs) so exciting Um, but I do think it's great it's great to see things moving that way and it you know it's fabulous to see us put out a a campaign like that that really resonates with people and and it just feels a little bit deeper than just selling people products it's actually like speaking to people and speaking to you know what what they really care about and ultimately helping to kind of like drive confidence so I think that is something that we're seeing the beauty industry really start to a real shift in the beauty industry that, um, yeah, we are we're super enthusiastic about. Well, thank you guys so much for spending some time with us. It has been an absolute pleasure to meet you both. And hopefully this isn't sort of the first and last. So please stay in touch. And hopefully, you know, we'll get to meet in person one day, which seems like such a novel idea these days, but it is coming. So thank you guys. Looking forward to see seeing how you grow in the U.S. and um, definitely stay in touch. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's a pleasure. For Elsie and Dominica, it's a matter of positivity, but they are unapologetic in their plans to evolve their young, agile startup into an industry-leading beauty brand by pushing back against category norms. They launched with the aim of filling a gap in the market for brands that stood for great ethics around natural, sustainability, vegan, and cruelty-free. But they're also laser-focused on accessibility and building a brand that could speak to a mainstream audience. Change is a communal effort. If it's really going to happen, space needs to be created for it to take place. For a brand to affect change requires managing and sustaining a team that are as passionate about the business that they're building as they are about constantly challenging the supply chain and the operational status quo. So in the end, it's a matter of positivity, and that's what matters. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, I'm Dominika. And I'm Elsie. And to us, what matters is positivity. Positivity around using natural ingredients, being pro-planet, and loving the skin that you're in. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC, You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at beautymatterofficial. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.